0: So my freshman year of college, I had a roommate who was just dumped by his high school sweetheart. And he was miserable. Wouldn't get out of bed, wouldn't, get out of, wouldn't go up to class. At that time, I had um, become a Christian. Uh, all of about two weeks. Never shared my faith before, but... It was so new and so vibrant to me that I thought just talking about God would make anybody happy. I remember him very distinctly in the top bunk, moping. And I said, I need to, I need to introduce you to the Lord. And then he perked up and said, wow, who's Lori? At that, at that moment, I realized how seemingly out of touch and irrelevant Christianity appeared. He was not looking for God, he was looking for a girl. Now, by God's grace, he became a Christian um, a few years later. But there was this great disconnect that I had felt there, that I continue to to turn over and wrestle with. What does the gospel have to do with the real problems that we face? Not just the stuff about the afterlife, not just the big questions about meaning, but the real stuff, the stuff that keeps you up, the stuff that gives you anxiety, the stuff you face day in and day out. What's Jesus have to do with it? What does a man who lived in poverty 2,000 years ago in a very remote part of the world have to do with the demands that you have at work? What does his execution on a cross have to do with your struggles and your fears? I put in the front of your bulletin our, our confessions, Westminster Confession of Faith's description of Christ. Role as a mediator? What equips him to serve in that role? And if you just read it, you're like, what in the world does this have to do with anything that I face in life? It seems foolishness. Because for many of us, the question about Christianity isn't so much is it true or even is it good. But the real test, the real question that we have is is it relevant? Does it matter? Now, we come to a passage where God speaks back. God speaks into this very issue through the prophet Samuel. He calls us, as it were, into the courtroom to start examining the evidence of very real situations putting on trial himself and his prophet, and then eventually us. But he does so not to condemn, not to squash, but to lead us to see the good news and the true hope that's found in the gospel. So let's turn to this passage now and let's ask God to bless our reading of it. Will you pray with me? Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for... um, this passage that comes uh, thousands of years ago in obscurity, in a world that, that seems very distant from us, and yet um, we know, Lord, because it's your word and it's your word to your people of all times and places, that it's your word to us here. It's your word to me. It's word to every individual in this room. Give us eyes to see it and hearts to receive it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been in the midst of this long series in 1 Samuel, and we've over and again seen this major theme that throughout God is calling us to walk by faith and not by sight. And that theme has really worked itself out in the very beginning chapters at looking at things that are meager and weak and compared to the strong and mighty, and says that if it's connected to God's promises, it doesn't matter how weak or meager it is, we will trust it. Because God is the real source of power we walk by faith, not by sight. But as we go on in this book, we will see the dynamic of that changes, not so much even looking at the meek, but also looking at the failures. The failures of Israel. The failures of Israel's king. And that even those who fail, who attach themselves to God's promises, are still to be those who we trust in, and walk by faith, not by sight. There is hope, even for those who make colossal errors. And here we see the first fracture, the first fissure that comes and and creates a big mess throughout the history of this people. And that was uh, what began in chapter 8 with their request to have a king. A king like every other nation. At the heart of that request was a desire for them to no longer be like Israel, to no longer live by faith, but to live like every other people lives in the practicalities and the things that work, that are tried and tested by their neighbors. It was a rejection at its heart of God and his covenant. And so, for the last uh, four chapters, from chapter 8 to chapter 12, we have seen this transition from a world where Israel obeyed judges and the people that God had put into their nation as rulers and leaders to now their their appointing of a king, a king that they asked for, and that is what Saul's name is. Translated uh, very roughly, Saul means you asked for it. And now we have the conclusion of this section. And so, in this way, the Hebrew poet, poetics uh, have created an inclusio, which means that many of the elements here at the end of this section, at the end of this transition to a king, are going to echo the beginning of that section. So, you'll, you'll read, if you read this in line with chapter eight, you see many of the same features. Samuel, here at the end, is giving his farewell speech. Now, if you read it very quickly, or perhaps in a first read it will feel a little awkward it seems as though samuel just has sour grapes is there an underlying current of bitterness there okay did i do anything wrong why did you choose him and rather than me wasn't i a good person you're going to get it now What did, I do, what did I do to deserve this? We see in, uh, in verse 3, he puts himself under trial. He tells them, testify against me. But as we draw closer to this text, we see what's happening here isn't a record of Samuel's defensiveness. No, the point is much more important. Samuel wants to take us into the courtroom He wants to take us into a very official, judicious process. It's something prophets in the future will do very often. But he uses this trial to expose not his failings, but Israel's foolishness. Their foolishness in their decision making. He's going to marshal all the evidence to, to prove that they are really in danger. They're in danger in the way that they're operating and thinking of missing. They're missing out on all the great things that God has promised by walking by faith and not by by walking by sight and not by faith. They're dismissing God's solutions by looking at their problems in a very worldly way. And looking at God's solutions in a very worldly way. Verse two begins with this uh, call back. To chapter 8, he says, in this contrast between him and the king, essentially he's saying, behold, here's your king, and here's me. And it's not particularly going after Saul at this point, but their cry for a king. Here's this guy, here's me. And if you go back to chapter 8, there's two main reasons that were given for their asking for a king, and they show up again here. The two reasons are Samuel is getting old, and his sons are disobedient. These are not godly reasons. And they're not godly reasons to reject a godly person. You look at the history of the Old Testament, and it's filled with old people doing amazing things. Moses doesn't even start his ministry until he's 80 years old. This is a critique that is far too familiar In our time, isn't it? For as much as people today are passionate, passionate for inclusion, passionate for gender equality, passionate against racism and bigotry in all its forms, amen. I'm so proud to see that many parts of our country are standing against some of that wickedness but it seems to be this cluelessness that that same bigotry is put on people who are older. I mean, it's there all the time. Far from venerating age, we marginalize people who are older. We can be dismissive, and the only criteria we use is they're old. We value youth, We value the appearance of youth. We don't want to be labeled as a senior citizen. Came up last week, didn't it? We don't want that label. Don't call us that. Because when we take that label, it means we're going to be pushed to the side. We are irrelevant. Now, it's not age that makes somebody worth hearing. You can Be a fool in an old age as much as you were a fool as a young person. But that's not the qualification to dismiss somebody. There is no sense in here as they evaluate Samuel that they understand any godly category in which to put him. He's old, let's move on to the next person who's young and athletic and tall and good-looking. That same goes for the other critique. His children, his disobedient children, and yes, they walked far from the Lord. As all parents will either realize or come to realize, the spiritual state of your children is not something you have control over. You can do amazing things by bringing them into the community of faith, bringing them to the means of grace week after week. And kids, you don't know the privilege you have of being in a congregation that loves the Lord. Take it for somebody who didn't have that as a kid. Being around people who talk and pray and mean it. All that can happen. But you still can't control it. Every parent knows that that's something that thankfully is not in our hands. But we must never judge somebody on the spiritual state of their children. Parents, you should never condemn yourselves on your own spiritual state, given where your kids may be at this time. Just as much as parents shouldn't take pride and praise ourselves at our children's spiritual health. They're judging Samuel based on these categories and kicking him out, showing him the door. And so Samuel calls this trial. He wants them to bring the spiritual resume that he has given over the years. Judge judge me. Look at what I've done. And notice the word he uses. I have not taken. I have not taken an ox. I have not taken a donkey. I have not taken bribes. Very clear contrast to what he says a king will do in chapter 8. If you remember in chapter 8, he says, when you get a king that you ask for, they will take. They will take. They will take your sons, your daughters, your property. And isn't there maybe just a slight jab that Samuel is giving there? You know, if I acted a little bit more like that, maybe you would have shown me more respect. If I took a little bit more of an assertive role, helped myself to some of your things, maybe you would have thought I was just like the worldly kings that you experience. He's holding a mirror to us, too, isn't he? So often we look at the qualities of a leader and want them to be good and and qualities that are assertive, strong. If we look like Samuel, meek, not helping himself, humble, we can be dismissive. You can hear this echo of of Paul who, when addressing the Corinthians, said, Hey, look at me. Uh, I have nothing. I am weak. I'm suffering. I'm not a great orator. This trial, Samuel is starting to expose something that has always been a temptation for God's people to always look at the externals and look at the worldly leaders around us and look at the the avenues of power, look at the things that provide and want that out of the church. We want a church to be like a shopping mall, give us our options. We want the purpose of it to, to resonate with our neighbors as having real value. Because at the end of the day, you you want to tell somebody that you respect, yes, I invest my time and my money in something that is going to help the poor or fight injustice or battle crime in a real tangible way. But to say that you spend your time and your money on worshiping Jesus, it just seems irrelevant. We want our sermons, to be TED Talks or... Those Apple um, announcements, when you get a new Apple product, you know, or at least I'm wearing black, right? You've seen, you know, either was used to be Steve Jobs, and now it's Tim Cook, you know, comes out. And there's a big PowerPoint, very attractive, and celebrities come out. And the idea is that here's your problem, and now this is exactly what's going to solve your problem. It's a nice little scripture passage here. And you ooh and ah. We're drawn to that. We're attracted to it. Now, this does not mean that an argument for worship to be dull or difficult. But the question is, what's our standard? What are we judging it on? What's our evaluation? Is it godliness or is it just what resonates out there in the world? Samuel doesn't just stop, though, with putting himself on trial. He doesn't stop with just saying, look at me and evaluate me. He goes the other step with Israel, and he says, now look at God. Look at him and his methods. God was the one that appointed me. God is the one who told me to do the way, things the way I wanted to. Now let's judge him, verses 7 through 11. Evaluate the righteous deeds of the Lord. It's not only that God delivered them again and again and again, as it says here, but look at how God has delivered him. Verse 11. Jerubbabel. That's Gideon. Gideon didn't go into war with much. Very little. Barak, Jephthah. Again and again, meager judges. These are not like the kings of the world. These aren't just you know, nice little religious guys that had their place. Samuel's saying, these are the people God used to deliver you from these threats that were breathing against you, from all the enemies that were in front of you, from Egypt and from Syria and from or, or Sisera and from the Philistines and from Moab. God used these methods, these weak methods to save you. God and Samuel are exonerated in this. Yes, that's right. And then we get to verse 12. There's a new enemy out there, the Ammonites. And here, because of this trial, God's people are exposed and shamed. But when Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, You said to me, no. No, God. Your way is not going to work against them. No, I don't care what you've done in the past. No, I don't want the type of person that you've used to deliver. But we shall have a king over us. A real human king just like those guys. Why? Why do they say no? Why do we say no? The issue isn't so much that we're turning away the spiritual solution that God has for us, it runs a little bit deeper. The issue truly is that we don't see the problem in spiritual terms. We don't see the problem itself in spiritual terms. And so the verdict comes in, and we find that Samuel and, and God, they're actually not the ones on trial here. It's us. And the case against us is clear. When problems come in, when threats come at us, we're very secular. We turn from God's solutions We marginalize God in the things that we think he's good for, those spiritual level things. But we turn very secular in our things that seem to be not spiritual. So I want the remainder of our time here, the remainder of this sermon, to see what's really happening when we ignore the spiritual nature of our problems. What happens when we only see our problems as not spiritual issues? We don't see the sin behind them. What happens? I'll give three observations from this text. First, if we only see the external problems and we only long for external solutions, then our satisfaction and our hope will only be fleeting. If we only see external problems and we only look for external solutions, then our hope that we have is not going to last. By external problems, I mean, I mean those problems that we, that we have that go beyond our heart. It could be problems of work or problems of an uncertain future, relationship breakdowns, even health concerns. You see, they're not the main problem. However much they're in your face, they're not the main issue. In other words, if you think that the real problems in your life are only the external ones, then the best you can actually hope for is just a momentary peace. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look at some examples. If your greatest anxiety is financial, if that's the thing that is stressing you and keeping you up at night, if, if your worries are over money, either the, the debt that you have now or the inability to afford the life you have, then the solution that you're going to look for is a financial solution. You want to be in a higher tax bracket. You want to be in a better income level. But what happens when your income level rises? Your satisfaction doesn't happen then. You don't reach the point of everything being okay. Very quickly, other problems start creeping in and taking priority and stressing you out. Your stress level doesn't change at all. Your problems just shift. You never get enough. Former NBA player, Hall of Fame NBA player Patrick Ewing once said about his financial problems, sure, we make a lot of money, but what you don't understand is we spend a lot of money too. He probably needed to think through that statement a little bit more. Doesn't come off as needy as you think. If the greatest problem, the greatest problem is our physical suffering, then the deepest thing that you're going to long for is healing. But if tomorrow you wake up complete and healed, how long would it take before you start grumbling again? How long would it take before something else gets to the number one position? Even if you have all that you want, you're not going to reach that deep level of satisfaction. You don't have to look very far and see the celebrities in our day with wealth and power and influence and fame and misery. Think about the solutions that you desire. Think about the solutions that you long for with the problems that you face. What would the absolute best case scenario be? And then if you got that, how long would it be before you started grumbling again? A month? A week? Israel has this long track record as we just saw. Again and again, God bringing enemies in front of them and bringing them deliverers. Solution after solution. Deliverance after deliverance. They are not long off of the path or on the path of getting away from Egypt where they were slaves before they started grumbling about the menu. But the really interesting thing here is that when our problems are only external, when we buy into that victimization culture, that culture that that feels so good, then really what's happening is we are being disempowered. When you're constantly being wronged, it's a very powerless place to be. It's a miserable place to be. Now, it feels powerful, it feels good, it feels self-justifying. It feels like I'm right and blameless, and actually, any problems I have, it can be blamed on those things out there. They're external to me. I'm grumpy because this happens. This let me down. This is in my life. But really, if that's true, then your entire life is just dependent on the whims of circumstance. That your well-being only rests in the power that's out there always, it's a miserable place to be. And it doesn't offer you any hope. If, you're true, if, if it's really true that you're dependent on those things, then the only thing you can hope for is just a momentary peace, a momentary relaxation of the, the war that's against you. But if the real battle actually is inside, and if your real problems actually go down to your heart and your core, well, that opens up the possibilities. That opens up possibilities for real, lasting joy and peace. It opens your heart to see what the gospel has for you. So that's the first thing. Being able to see your problems as external and your solutions as external are going to limit what hope comes from you. What, what hope you're, you're actually going to have. Secondly, if your problems are only external, then your relationship with God is going to remain impersonal and cold. You know, I found this a great disconnect here between Christians and people who are religious, or between Christians and people who know and think they know what Christianity is about, but have dismissed it. For them, Christianity is very task-driven. God asks tasks from you, and you ask tasks from God. God. God wants me to do this, and if I do it really well and faithfully, then he will do this for me. The big aha moment for many is to understand that in Christianity, God is personal. He cares not just for the externals, but he cares for you. He's designed you and created you to have a relationship with him. This is foundational to who we are as humans. And who we are as the people of God. It can't be detached from that. And so when he calls you to a task, he isn't trying to get more work out of you. But he's trying to get more grace into you. He wants to use the circumstances of your life to draw you closer to him. Not in order for the negotiations to start. Okay, if, I, if you can do this for me, please, then I'll give you what you want in my great sovereignty. You know how foolish that sounds. But if that's really true, if God does work all the circumstances, and that means all the externals, uh, then we have to brace ourselves with, for what is probably the most shocking thing in this passage. You see, in the history of all of God's deliverance here, what we see is that the person behind all of the external threats is God. Did you see that? If Israel is fearing the hand of Sisera, fearing the hand of the Philistines, fearing the hand of Moab, they're missing the big fact That the one that they should be fearing is the Lord. Because verse 9 says, It's the Lord their God who sold them into the hands of all these other nations. God's the one behind all of their enemies. You see, these enemies, however bad they are, are not the real problem. There is a bigger problem. And it's our relationship with God. A relationship that's become warped and twisted, that we've gone our own way. In this case, they were trusting Baals and Ashtaroth. They have forgotten God. In your case, you're trusting those things to bring you satisfaction and life. You're so overwhelmed with the big issues of your life that you put your hope in things you think will work. I do it too. We long for the things that we think will be tried and true. But God brings these this heat to come at us so that we might cry out. They needed to get to that point. To get to that point, it's said so well in verse 21, do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. In case you missed it the first time, these empty things are empty. Empty. Let's think about that. If all of our external problems have behind a spiritual so, uh, reason, then maybe the solution isn't external. Maybe there is something deeper that we need from God and just our obedience, to, His obedience to us. If you start thinking that way, that's going to start changing your prayer life. It needs to change how you articulate prayers, How even you articulate prayer requests. If we pray, God, I pray for my exams. What are we really praying for? God, pray for my Aunt Sally. God, give me a better spouse. Or God, give me more obedient children. Not more children, Lord, but more obedient children. we desperately need to see the spiritual nature of our problems or our relationship becomes warped. When you pray for your exam, what are you praying for? What are the sins that threaten you? Or what are ways in which you want that exam to serve God's kingdom? What are ways in which that there's spiritual issues behind this thing? When you pray for safe travel or health, Is it just that you want things to go as smoothly as possible because your plans have to succeed? Are you really just praying for your own self-sovereignty? Are you really praying, God, don't mess with what I have planned? Or do you see the spiritual nature of it? We have to start transforming our prayers. Instead of just praying for people and things... Start praying for the spiritual issues that are related to the people and things. Instead of just praying for events, pray, thinking how God can use these events. I don't say that in order to condemn anybody's prayer requests or the way that they pray, but to entice you, to draw you out, to see there's a richer life here. And there's a harm in the way you approach prayers that can start making God and you just transactional in your relationship. Praying this way will begin to deepen your relationship with God, lead you to start matching your desires with His. It will start to transform your prayers, to start conforming to His, longing for His kingdom to expand, and knowing that that's the absolute best, rather than just trying to pry His fingers Free of a blessing for you. God, I really need this. I really, really need this. Lord, please give it to me. No, we need to see our problems as more than external because it affects our relationship with God. Because thirdly, if we see our problems as external and only external, then all God is offering us All that he has for us, all that he's truly promised, will ultimately seem irrelevant. If all we need is the external solution, God, nowhere in his word, promises the external solution. In Mark chapter 2, in the Gospels, we see this scene very early in Jesus' ministry, where four men are carrying a paralyzed man. To Jesus, the crowds are so great, they carry this guy on a stretcher up onto the rooftop where, he's, where Jesus is, is uh, speaking. And they dig a hole through the roof and lower this man. This is the devotion that they had and the desire that they had for this man to be healed. Bring him in the front of Jesus. Finally getting into his, all that effort to get before Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Man, your, your sins are forgiven. And there's this, this crazy conversation afterwards by the, the leaders, the Pharisees, of whether or not he had the authority. But you can just see the other guys who went all that trouble to bring him to Jesus saying, yeah, that's nice, but um, he's paralyzed. Like the whole reason we got him here was not so that you could forgive his sins. Do you get it? Imagine how, just sometimes that can be so familiar, we forget how offensive that passage can be. You work in the ER, somebody comes in, <laughs> bringing you somebody, and oh yeah, his real problem is he's, he's got sin. I mean, how offensive that seems. Offensive if it's not true. Offensive if we don't believe it. That sin is actually our biggest problem. The only way to take Jesus seriously is if we take sin seriously. The only way we're going to see the gospel as good news is if we understand the bad news relative to our sin. And God needs to make us aware of it. He needs to make us alarmed by it. The end of this mock trial that's in this passage, Samuel turns the tables on Israel. And in verses 16 to 18, we have the the courtroom scene of the sentencing. The verdict has been rendered, and now it's the sentencing. And he basically says, all rise, get up, stand on your feet. I'm going to do an amazing thing here. He's going to call on God to give the verdict, and the verdict is the thundercloud. The point here isn't that God's doing a nice little parlor trick to show that Samuel is right. The thundercloud happening in this dry season with the wheat harvest is God's sign of judgment. This cloud is God's glory cloud. Psalm 68. I believe Psalm 29. This idea that God's glory cloud coming here in judgment, this Lightning that comes out of this cloud, if it hits the ripe wheat, is going to be destructive. This isn't just like my dog when he used to hear the thunder cloud go right under our sofa. No real threat there, but just scared the dickens out of him. No, this was a very real threat. This thunder and lightning could actually wreak havoc. You shall know, verse 17, and see that your wickedness is great before the Lord in asking for a king. And the people greatly feared. Fearing God's wrath is not a bad thing. It's not an Old Testament thing. You know, that was what they, you know, in the Old Testament, that's where God, they feared God's wrath. And then he just kind of mellows out in the New Testament. It's all about love. No. Start looking for passages about fearing God in the New Testament, you find them all over the place. It's vital for our understanding of sin. It isn't like God was was, uh, changing who he is and how we approach things. God's wrath matches his justice. We want a God who is just, who deals with evil, can call it out and will not tolerate wickedness. And he will do something about it. He will destroy it. You know, that, that should be a liberating thing for us. It should be liberating to know that evil will not triumph, that God will do it. But it's liberating because all the other things that are lesser than God, that we give control over, start to master that fear back to us. The things that we think that are our problem are the things that we rattle at in fear. As Oswald Chambers says, as we've looked at before, when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. To see God behind all the circumstances that threaten you is to know the fear of God. And to know liberation from the fear of other things. Freedom from the fear of other things. God displays his wrath, though, not merely to cause us to shake. But in shaking, we might cry out and be restored. Otherwise, we don't perceive our need of salvation. We're not meant to stay trembling. We're not meant to stay fearful. And so, for Samuel says in verse 20, after he just told them of the wrath of God, after he just made them shake, now he says, do not fear. Do not be afraid. But not the, do not be afraid, it's all bad. He's just all bark and no bite. No, that's not his point. (laughs) And it's not his point to say, you know, your sins really aren't that bad, don't fear. No, he says, do not fear, you have done all this evil. (laughs) Do not fear, yet serve the Lord and not empty gods, not empty idols. And then the rest of the passage seems to put the fear back into you because there's a condition. It seems to be conditional on our obedience. If it's conditional, I'm scared. Because if it's conditional, then I don't think that I can promise to be faithful. What's going on in this last part of this passage? That very last verse is very intimidating. If you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. The fact is, Israel will be faithless. They will still do wickedly. Their king will still do wickedly. That's cause for great fear and trembling. We still do wickedly. But God is going to provide another king. A king who will not fail. This Jesus will be faithful but even despite his faithfulness, he will take on this curse. Jesus, the king, standing for his people, will be swept away. He's the mediator. He's the one we need. He's the deliverer. Better than all the other deliverers in the past. He will be swept away so that we can have the full blessing, the assurance of those who, who were obedient All the promises here that should have gone to Christ go to us. This is good news. This is all that we've been driving for. You can rejoice now because you know your problem is not the external thing, but the internal thing. You see the spiritual nature of your problem, and you know now that the gospel, like hand in glove, fits perfectly with your need. But you will never see it unless you see the sin and the wrath that's there. This is such a hard message because we want to downplay those aspects. But what do we wind up with? Richard Niebuhr, a theologian from last century, critiqued modernism and the way religion was starting to neuter these effects and he came up with what is, he called the creed of modernism. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a ministry of, a cro- of Christ without a cross. If you don't know your problem, if you don't see the teeth of it, you'll never understand the gospel. But conversely, if you see your, your sin, if you know every problem out there underlies a deeper problem, a problem that has the wrath and uh, due to the just wrath to our sin then your heart will sing at the gospel. Then you will rejoice that the news has come. Then you will not fear. Then every detail of that description of Christ the mediator will make sense to you and will resonate with you. And you will want to know him deeper and richer. Because once you know that solution, you will never look for another. Amen.